Blog Talk Radio. It's Sunday evening, and welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Your hosts for tonight's show are Robert Brining and Jeremy Dunn. They'll be taking your calls and speaking on the topic of the week. You're encouraged to call in and share some of your life experiences with us. The number to call is 347-215-9442. That number again, 347-215-9442. Welcome to Pause I Am Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Pause I Am Radio. My name is Robert Brining. I am your host. I want to thank you all for joining us on this lovely Sunday evening. Um, tonight, I have a special co-host. Uh, uh, Jack is um, busy with uh, some stuff that he has planned, and uh, Jeremy is actually feeling under the weather again this week. So, Jeremy, we're sending you some love, hoping that you get yourself uh, feeling better very, very soon. And tonight, I have a special co-host. Um, it is the fabulous uh, Scott Kramer. So I'm waiting for him to actually connect uh, with us now. So um, I'm excited to have Scott with us. Uh, Scott hasn't uh, co-hosted with me in a while, so it's nice to have him um, back on with me. Tonight we have a, a special guest. We're going to focus mainly on the topic of HIV criminalization, and we're going to have basically, I think, the person who would be the expert on this and knows the most about this and is the most informative on the subject, uh, Sean Strubon, to uh, to talk about this issue and answer your questions, because a lot of people living with HIV, um, you know, live in fear of, of being prosecuted and things like that. So we need to get these questions, you know, answered. And why not have the best person that I can find, you know, on the subject, Sean? So Sean will be joining us shortly. Scott, are you with me? I'm here. Hi, Robert. Hi, everybody. Hey, it's so great to have you. It's great to be here. I'm very excited to be back on the air. Yes, I'm, I'm excited to have you back on. Unfortunately, Jeremy is sick. And that's the reason, but hopefully he'll be yeah. better soon. Hopefully he feels better soon, and uh, I hope I do right by him tonight and uh, by everybody else as well. And I'm really excited to talk to Sean tonight about this uh, really interesting and hot topic. Yes, yes. I just uh, glanced over to the chat room, and I just saw all these bunch of people just jumped in. So I uh, welcome everybody in the chat room. We'll be taking questions there and on the air um, when Sean joins us. Sean joins us in a little bit. Scott, I know you had a lot going on. Um, you know, for people who may not be familiar with you, can you just give a little background of, you know, who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Scott Kramer, and I am a psychotherapist in New York City, um, specializing in work with gay men and uh, gay men living with HIV or AIDS. Um, I work for an agency full-time that serves LGBTQ youth, and also uh, part-time I have a psychotherapy practice where I see uh, gay men and talk about any issues they may be having. And also I run a support group on Sundays. at uh, I rent space at the LGBT Center, and uh, it's called High Five Support Group. And uh, it's for gay men living with HIV and AIDS, and we talk about any range of topics. It can be anything from dating to relationships to making small changes in their lives, anything that people need to talk about. And uh, we really are forming a community. So uh, it feels good, and, and I hope uh, that it's helping some people. Well, that's awesome. And you yourself um, have been living with HIV for how long? Yes, uh, I was diagnosed with AIDS in 1995 uh, when I was coughing for like six months. I finally decided to go to the doctor and found out that I had PCP pneumonia. And uh, so that was sort of a wake-up call. And <laughs> I was sick for a while, and then uh, protease inhibitors came out the next year, and um, I've been stable ever since. So, um, yeah. I think that's great. So in your support group, do you... Um, does the subject of HIV criminalization come up? Do do your peop you know, your the people that you meet with, do they talk about this at all? Is it something you bring up? Absolutely. Uh it comes up a lot. Um and th there's not or there hasn't at least been too much to say about it, mostly because there's not that much that is out about the subject. Um so basically uh I have directed people towards Sean's um, documentary, and that's been pretty good. 
And, uh, you know, I don't feel so well-versed in it, in the topic, to be able to really talk about it so extensively. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm really excited to have Sean on tonight, so I can ask him some questions and get his expertise. Yeah, because this is something that we talk about in the support group because um, that I go to here in, in Philly. So, um, again, you know, I'm not an expert on this subject either, and I don't really know. And the laws change state by state. Yeah, and that's what's really scary about it. And, you know, in watching his documentary, it looks like um, even if someone has an undetectable viral load and uses um, protection, can still be prosecuted and sent to um, jail. Yes, and it's, it's scary. You know, for us living with HIV, it's something that it's a frightful thing, you know, to think about that there's a possibility that, you know, you could be put to jail just for, because some of these people, you know what I mean, and we'll get into more of the cases, especially the ones that are in um, Sean's documentary, um, HIV is not a crime. Uh, I posted a link in the chat room, and I'll post it back up there again if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's been Great. featured on the Positive Network all, actually all week for people to check it out. And um, it's, you know, it has three people, Nick, uh, Robert, and Monique, and, um, you know, I know all three of these people personally. I've met them all in person. They're, they're excellent, upstanding people. And, you know, depending on it, like I said, they're, you know, either they're dis- they, they already have disclosed to their partner and then, you know, they say that they haven't disclosed. So it's really state by state but also by on an individual basis. A lot of these, I think I've, I read 25% of the cases um, that when people with HIV are being prosecuted are when they're being, you know, spitted on or they're being bit. And it's public knowledge that HIV is not transmitted through, you know, someone spitting at you through mucus, saliva. So I think exactly. that it's definitely a hot topic. I mean, it's been discussed a lot. You know, you see it in the news. Yeah, and I think that um, HIV criminalization is something that really fuels stigma and um, fear. And I think that that also... Um, increases isolation, and um, it's hard for people to go out and meet people and reveal their status and disclose, and disclose not only to potential partners and relationships, but also maybe even to work, and they're not able to call their insurance to ask about getting medication because they're so fearful of what human resources might say, even if human resources wouldn't find out. So, you know, it's a really scary thing for a lot of people. Yeah, disclosure is a huge issue, and I don't understand why certain shows on television don't really attack the subject of disclosure and how difficult it is. And I just think, I don't know if it's too taboo, but, I mean, like, I wrote into Dr. Phil about it, and I thought, like, you know, this is a show, Dr. Phil, is all about having communication, you know what I mean, and talking about issues with, you know, with the people in your family. If you watch a lot of his shows, they deal with a lot of family issues. And Mm -hmm. I thought it was a great idea to do a show on this and to talk about, you know, just how how it is to disclose that work, you know, and how that's different from disclosing to your mother and disclosing to somebody who you're in a relationship with and your friends and just how it's so different just to open that line of communication to let people know that, you know, it's not something to be afraid of. Absolutely. I think that's the most important thing. And um, I think that, you know, what you're doing with the POSIAM community um, in terms of people being able to uh, disclose in a safe environment like the community online um, gives them a sense of security that uh, then they're able to maybe translate into um, offline as well. So, you know, there's that sort of thing. And there's also... um, the support group that I run is in the hopes that um, it can build a sense of community and people can do role plays in there and they can see what it's like to disclose and come out about their status and um, get reactions, very real reactions to what that may be like for them. It's just, it's so touchy, you know, people don't know who to blame. Do they blame this person? Do they blame that person? So um, I, I actually have our, our guest on so please um, help me welcome um, the fabulous actor and filmmaker, Sean Strube. He um, is the founder of Pause Magazine, for those who um, obviously know Sean from that. 
but he is now spearheading this new documentary called HIV is Not a Crime, and he's going to come on and talk about HIV criminalization. We're going to take your questions in the chat room and, and you know, through the phone lines. Um, please help me welcome Sean Stroop to the show. Hey, Robert. Hi, How you doing, Sean? Are you there? I'm pretty good. Can you hear me okay? Yep, I got you. Okay, good. Nice, nice to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Sean. Uh, my name is Scott Kramer, and I am uh, guest hosting tonight. I, we met once before at the PAWS offices when um, Sean Decker came by um, and performed at the PAWS offices one day. Um, I introduced myself, and so it's great to be able to talk to you um, online tonight and talk about your documentary. Well, thanks very much for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I remember that evening when Sean performed up at the office. That was fun. <laughs> Yes, it really was. That's awesome. Sean, um, for people who may not know, you know, a, a little bit about you, can you give a, a brief little, uh, you know, history about, like, you know, h how you came to finding Pause Magazine and stuff like that, and then we can move directly into this amazing film that you're about to put together. Sure. Uh, I mean, I was sort of involved in the epidemic, you know, from the, from really from the, the from 1981. I mean, I was, uh, a volunteer copy editor with a gay paper in New York. So I was following the first stories. And the first time uh, the group of five guys in Los Angeles were sort of linked sexually and they identified some symptoms that they shared, I had those symptoms. So from, you know, almost day one, I knew whatever this was involved me. And I just got involved and paid attention and became a source of distributing information to friends, you know, who didn't live in New York or didn't go to the meetings and, that turned into a newsletter and ultimately turned into pause uh, in 1994. So that's the, the trajectory of being an information provider. And I was already involved politically and an activist, you know, ever since I was a little kid in something or another. So getting involved in social change work as it related to the epidemic was a, a natural progression for me. Um, and what I'm doing now, do you want me to talk about the film? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's get into it because I'm sure we're going to have tons of questions. Sure. Well, the, um, with PAWS, you know, we would cover criminalization cases when they came up, and it was something that really interested me. And several years ago, when the number of prosecutions started to increase dramatically and the, the level of, of injustice in some of the cases and these incredible, you know, long sentences, you know, 35 years for spitting at a cop and, you know, 25 years uh, for not disclosing when he used a condom and had an undetectable viral load and so on, um, that um, several years ago, uh, after I took a few years off and after I kind of got reengaged in the epidemic, uh, my focus was on criminalization. And not just alerting people to the injustice, the human rights injustice that is involved in these statutes, which are considerable, but also having people understand why this is an enormous public health problem, that the prosecution of people for failing to disclose is a tremendous disincentive um, for people to get tested. Uh, if you haven't gotten tested, you can't be arrested. And, uh, you know, when, when we're trying so hard for people to know their status and we know that when people get tested and they know their status, their sexual behaviors are um, far less likely to put someone at risk than those who are positive who don't know their status. Um, so to have something that, 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 you know, so discourage people from getting tested and drive stigma. What is, you know, we know that stigma is, one of the biggest obstacles to everything in the epidemic, to getting people to get tested, to people being disclosing and being open about their status, to even asking someone their status for someone who's negative. Stigma is an obstacle to asking about status, uh, about someone's sero status, uh, as well as accessing treatment. Uh, all these things are impaired so dramatically by stigma. And what is a more extreme manifestation of stigma than when the government enshrines stigma in the law. And that's what's happened with these HIV-specific criminal statutes. They create a different law for people who have HIV 
than for people who don't have HIV. Uh, and in my view, that is uh, as wrong as creating different laws for men than for women or different laws based on someone's the color of their skin or their sexual orientation. We're creating a viral underclass in the law. Uh, and in any case, the, 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 there are all sorts of alternatives to um, criminal prosecution in these circumstances. And yet if failure to disclose HIV is cause for criminal prosecution, uh, it's holding HIV out as something separate and different from other sexually transmitted pathogens. You know, hepatitis can kill people. HPV, human papillomavirus, genital warts, uh, can and does kill many people if left untreated, just like with HIV. So that's the, 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 the kind of the mission right now, is getting people to look more carefully at this and understand it. Because, you know, until someone learns something about uh, how these laws have been applied and the effect of them on the epidemic, um, people are overwhelmingly in favor of these laws when you just ask them about it casually, including uh, gay people. Um, you know, they think that they serve a, a purpose uh, in, in reducing transmission, and they don't. They don't. There's been all sorts of research showing that they don't do anything to reduce transmission. So, Sean, why do you think um, that this is happening now? Um, you know, it's, it's 2012, and uh, we've been living with, uh, you know, the virus for 30 years, and so why is this stigma and criminalization happening now, do you think? Well, I think the stigma has morphed over the years, and I think people confuse uh, uh, fear of contagion with stigma mm. generally. So while fear of casual contagion has declined somewhat, it's still ridiculous what people believe, you know, about how it can be transmitted, but it's not as bad as it used to be. But other aspects of stigma in terms of, uh, of uh, prejudgment uh, and marginalization, uh, I believe are worse today than they've ever been. For, you know, a young person who tests positive, it is much um, more difficult for them to come out even to their peers uh, than, uh, than it was, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, you know, 20, 25 years ago, gay man tested positive. He was surrounded by this loving community of peers, uh, many of whom didn't know whether they were positive or not. Everybody was kind of engaged in it. Uh, he wasn't judged. Um, and yet when a young gay man tests positive today, um, there is a subtext. What was he doing, Crystal? What was he doing? You know, you, you knew better. You knew how not to get it. And, of course, people know how not to get it. But protecting one's sexual health and making right sexual choices uh, is not simply about having knowledge. You know, virtually every woman who becomes pregnant who doesn't want to become pregnant knows precisely how not to become pregnant. But sex is much more complicated than simply having knowledge. You're dealing with, with hormones and passion and desire and dominance and submission and, uh, and, and sometimes alcohol and substances and so on. So integrating that knowledge into behaviors is where the, we, we've sort of missed a step and where we aren't giving people the, the tools for them to uh, use the knowledge of how to protect themselves in ways that, that, that it will. So... For one, to get back to your question, why now? I think the stigma is increasing. Uh, and, uh, and I think that the stigma uh, sort of plays into this idea of someone needs to pay. If I test positive, I have to, it's not my fault. I have to blame somebody. I have to identify somebody. Um, and I think also that it's part of the broader sort of sense of, the, you know, so much of, of the, the country has moved on. You know, AIDS, they kind of did that. There was, it had its moment where people were concerned and compassionate and so on. Now it is sort of melted into that list of seemingly intractable uh, problems of poverty and race and, um, uh, and, and things like that um, that has made it easier for people to, uh, uh, to ignore. And then there's just the, the, you know, across the board, in the United States in the last, you know, several decades has been an increasingly uh, criminalized environment with harsher penalties and more things being uh, uh, prosecuted to more of a degree. 
And that is um, that's a function of a lot of things, including having a for-profit uh, private prison industry that lobbies for uh, longer and harsher sentences for all sorts of things, having a mindset, political mindset, uh, about you know locking and controlling populations rather than addressing human needs that are so pervasive in our society. So I, it's it's multifactorial. There's not a single um, there's not a single uh, uh, reason. Yeah, it sounds like it's very multifaceted and uh, really interesting. Um, I have a friend that just tested positive after being in a long-term relationship. Um, and while it doesn't have to do with, you know, criminalization, there's still a stigma around his thinking about telling other people. And I know he's listening now, so, um, you know, if we happen to get to that um, that would be great to talk about it as well. Okay, great. You know, um, Sean, one of the things I wanted to talk about were the, the, the some of the cases that, or the people that you, you know, profiled in the documentary. Um, it, it, those three people, are they the only ones in the documentary, or is there a bunch of them and they're just kind of like a few? No. The, um, the, the brief excerpt that, that um, we posted online, this is from the interviews with three people, um, the film is not finished yet. I'm, I'm actually, I have another six or seven interviews already scheduled. Um, uh, so that was just to give kind of a sense of what it was about. One of the problems is that in the last year or two, that there's starting to be much more attention to criminalization and um, understanding of how important it is to address it. And, you know, there are panels at conferences, and we've formed this Positive Justice Project, which is a great collaboration of about 40 groups that I encourage people to participate in if they want to get involved. Uh, my own effort that I'm directing is called CERO, CERO Statement Empowerment Resource Organization. But so there's this attention happening, but the discussions were always in the abstract. There never, uh, in my experience, had been anyone who actually had been prosecuted uh, or charged with failing to disclose uh, or served time for it in the, uh, in, in the conversational mix. We knew about cases because we could, you know, read about them in the press and so on. Um, so I really sought to um, to reach out and establish relationships with some people who had gone through this in their own lives, uh, introducing a number of them to each other. Most of them had never met anyone else who had gone through it, uh, and it's a, you know, it, it has to be a really uniquely um, alienating and isolating experience to be you know, arrested and have your local papers and media and television calling you an AIDS monster and an AIDS predator. And the media coverage of these is so hysterically inaccurate, you know, and so hysterical, but also just incredibly inaccurate. You know, they'll talk about, you know, somebody spread AIDS to 100 people, and, you know, and of course there wasn't any transmission. You know, HIV transmission is, uh, is sometimes the case, but it's seldom. The vast majority of these cases don't, don't involve uh, transmission. Um, so, uh, so as I started to kind of, you know, bring people who had been prosecuted into the mix and so we could hear from them and have them involved and develop some advocacy, um, I decided to start interviewing them and, uh, sharing the, the, um, uh, the footage because it makes it so personal, you know, going back to the media coverage, most of the media that people have heard about specific cases has been um, very difficult cases where someone uh, uh, has been labeled an AIDS monster and sometimes has been engaged in um, uh, you know, repeatedly reckless behavior. Uh, sometimes there's been transmission involved. Uh, very often those cases have also um, uh, uh, involved, you know, whether minors or drug issues, all sorts of other So those are the cases that have gotten a lot of press. They get press that has been hysterical and inaccurate, and that has kind of shaped people's opinions about this issue somewhat. So by talking to more people who've been prosecuted and sharing their stories, um, and they look at them and they say, wow, that could be me. You know, Nick Rhodes in Iowa met a guy online, went over to the guy's house, he used a condom. He had an undetectable viral load. The guy went to the police a few days later, 
Nick was charged, prosecuted, convicted, sentenced to 25 years in prison and lifetime sex offender registration. Um, you know, Robert Suttle started dating a guy. Uh, he never lied to him, um, but they didn't discuss HIV status. Um, and then when the guy did find out that Robert was, was positive, um, their relationship had been contentious. They'd been dating for a few months. And the guy started threatening to turn him into the police. Um, uh, again, in neither of those cases was there transmission. You know, Monique Moray in Charleston, South Carolina, was in the Army. She found out she had HIV when she was pregnant. She was in the middle of a divorce, and she was pregnant with her third child. And she found out uh, during her, her you know, pregnancy health care that she was positive and got very little um, uh, uh, counseling, very, very little. It was, it was really awful. She didn't know anything about HIV. You know, she was a, uh, uh, how did this happen to my household, you know? Um, and a few months later, uh, she has a date with a guy, another soldier. And the word got around the base that Monique and this other guy had hooked up the way people, you know, gossip. Well, apparently Monique's medical records had also gotten around the base, and there were people who knew that she was positive. And so this came to the attention of the Army. Uh, they talked to the man. He said, she told me to use a condom. I didn't want to. She didn't disclose that she had HIV, but she specifically told him to use a condom. He didn't want her charged. He said, I'm a big boy. You know, I, I, she told me to use a condom. I chose not to, and that's my I have to take responsibility for that. Um, but she was charged, and she was prosecuted. And uh, the, during her trial, she was facing 8 to 10 years or 10 to 12 years. I forget which. And during the trial, the government decided, the, the Army decided to drop the charges, um, but they did kick her out of the Army. Um, the, uh, and I think they dropped the charges. Uh, uh, I'm not sure why they dropped the charges, but it may have been because they may have had a liability around protecting her, her medical records, since that word had gotten around the base. People didn't gossip about her being positive. Um, but the point is, all three of these people um, are quite sort of ordinary people. You know, they're, they're not people out there with, you know, uh, uh, long criminal records and, you know, tremendous addiction and mental health issues and so on that uh, tends to be the case in some of the more highly publicized cases. So when people see and hear these stories and it becomes more human, um, they'll pay a little more attention to the issue and maybe understand it somewhat and will open up some minds and, and, and people will look at this a little bit differently. I totally agree. I actually, um, I have, I've met two of them, but I know all three of them. Monique, um, you know, she's, you know, out there now with her own radio show, and she's going to be on, um, you know, our show in, in, a, in a couple weeks in. Uh, you know, she's out there very vocal, and she's the biggest sweetheart, you know. You totally fall in love with her when you talk to her. And, and, and Robert and Nick. Monique was such a delightful interview uh, because she's just a walking soundbite. She's just such yeah. a natural for, for, for media. And she's got three gorgeous little boys and the most wonderful husband. It was, uh, uh, and she's now, uh, I, know, I, I know she has her, her, uh, her radio show, but she also has opened a center in, I think it's Holly Hill, South Carolina, in a town where her father's a pastor. Her father and her grandfather were pastors. And, uh, and she's opened a little drop-in center, an education and testing center, and is trying to combat stigma. The nearest services for anyone who's HIV-specific services are like 40 miles away. So she's gone in a very short period of time from not knowing anything about HIV and being diagnosed uh, to turning that experience into providing service to people in her community, and I think she's enjoying it. I know she's doing something very, very important. Robert uh, Subtle got out of jail uh, in Baton Rouge just about a year ago. It was like I think a year ago last week. And he, as he described it, he knew he needed a different life plan because his life plan previously hadn't included becoming a convicted felon, hadn't included uh, being on 
the sex offender registration, which in Louisiana, amongst other things, he had to buy, he was required to buy legal notices in his hometown papers. So this picture saying where he lived and that he was a sex offender. His driver's license, underneath the photograph on his driver's license, in great big red capital letters, it says sex offender. Um, and uh, interesting thing about the guy uh, who uh, pressed charges against him um, is like a pre-med student or a pharmacist or something like that. Um, but um, Robert, so when he got out of prison, he decided he wanted to get involved in this issue and uh, got in touch with me and got involved with the Positive Justice Project and then was very fortunate he got hired by his local aid service organization, the Philadelphia Center in Shreveport, um, and to do prevention work with young African-American MSM. And they've been very supportive of him becoming an advocate uh, and involved in, in trying to change policies around HIV criminalization. Um, and Robert uh, and Nick, uh, Nick Rhodes, who also has uh, been great about talking to people and being open about his experience uh, and uh, uh, participating in interviews and things, uh, Robert and Nick were uh, able to go to Geneva, Switzerland in the middle of December to a UNAIDS meeting of their program coordinating board, and uh, and they both had an opportunity to speak. You know, there are like a hundred countries or something, each with their little sign in front of them. You know, Zambia, Zaire, whatever. It was an it was imposing but a very powerful moment. Clips of their comments are, are on YouTube, and they were the stars of this session. People were just astonished to hear their stories, and also to hear you know, what are such obvious human rights abuses uh, happening in the United States. Um, uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm glad that any of the three of them would be terrific guests for your, for, for the show, by the way. Yeah, actually, um, I met Nick um, when we filmed um, the ADAPT, um, what do you call it, the, the PSA that we did together, and I never knew the backstory of Nick. And I was like, it's kind of weird. He told me he wasn't on Facebook. I thought it was strange that, you know, he wasn't on there, and, you know, so we didn't connect anywhere. But now I know the backstory. He's like this super, super nice guy. And Monique, yeah, Monique's going to be on, and I'm actually going to have Robert on as well. So Nick is somebody I have to reach out to. But, yeah, I'm excited but to actually meet I, with Robert again. Should I sort of tell, describe some of what, what Nick faced? Um, and then and, and the Nick's story has a little bit of a happier ending. Uh, uh, so Nick was sentenced to 25 years. And fortunately, after about a year, the judge decided to reconsider the sentence and let him out. Uh, it was a very significant factor that lots of people wrote letters um, saying this is really unjust, this is, this is wrong. And fortunately, the judge uh, uh, was you know, swayed and, and, and let him out. But he was sentenced to being on the Iowa sex offender registration for, for I think, the rest of his life and uh, probation for five years. The restrictions he faced so... They're like medieval. Um, he could not use social networking sites like Facebook and things like that. Uh, he had to agree to allow his computer to be searched at any time without a warrant. He couldn't have alcohol in his house. Um, he couldn't have a relationship except one that was healthy as defined by the state. He couldn't have casual sex. Um, he couldn't leave his home county without permission of his uh, parole officer. He was subject to wearing an ankle bracelet. They never put, a, put it on him, he thinks, because of budgetary reasons. Um, he had to uh, submit to all, well, he had to go to all sorts of, you know, uh, counseling sessions and this and that and you know, training sessions. And, um, he was classified not as the lowest risk sex offender, but the uh, 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 higher risk category because his victim was of the same sex. Uh, in Iowa, apparently, that if the uh, perpetrator and the victim are of the same sex, that automatically kicks it up to a higher risk level on the sex offender registration. He also had to um, consent to be uh, to lie detector tests several times a year. Lie detector tests ask all sorts of regular questions, or you, uh, the regular meaning they were on every uh, every time he took it. Is he attracted to having sex with children? Is he attracted to wearing women's clothing? Is he attracted to you know, bondage and discipline? Is he, is he a peeping Tom? 
Is he attracted to having sex with animals? Uh, which he usually points out happens to be legal in Iowa. Um, um, so these always sort of you know, intimate and very often degrading and demeaning questions. And then a history of every sexual contact he's had since the last lie detector test, where he met the person, what they said, what they did, how often did they do it, where did they do it, when did he disclose. Um, and if that's not bad enough, uh, right before he, he, he left Iowa, and I'll get to the, the happiest part of the happy ending in a moment, um, one of the therapists that, that he had to see uh, was saying that she thought she wanted him to undergo phallometric testing. Phallometric testing. That involves putting a device on his penis and then showing him different pictures and so on to measure and try to identify what really stimulates him. Now, this was a person who had sex with another adult two consenting adults where there was not a risk of transmission. Nick had an undetectable viral load and he used a condom. You know, that's the belt and suspenders approach. There wasn't going to be any transmission. And that's what he had to go through. Now, the, the happy ending on Nick's story uh, is, uh, well, all of these people, this is so, such a, you know, it turns their lives upside down. The stories continue with each of them. But Nick uh, got a job in Texas, the company he'd worked for in Iowa, he manages a, a hospitality property, um, had bought a property in Texas, and they were interested in transferring him there. And Iowa agreed to, to the transfer if Texas's parole office would, uh, would be responsible for Nick. And so Iowa and Texas had some sort of reciprocal arrangement, so that worked out. So Nick goes to Texas, and he has to check in with the parole officer. But Texas does not have an HIV-specific statute like what Nick was convicted under in Iowa. So they didn't have a corresponding statute, so they just had to manage his parole during this period of time that uh, Iowa required. But they didn't require him to register for the Texas sex offender registration. Um, so he is, is you know, on, on parole in Texas, but he doesn't uh, have to, he's not on the sex offender registry anymore. But he can't move back to Iowa without having to go back on the sex offender registration. Uh, so it's wow. difficult for him because he's very close to his family. Well, that was another restriction, by the way. He couldn't be around uh, children, anyone under the age of 18, without adult supervision. Uh, that's just a requirement of the sex offender registration. Even though his crime was with a peer, you know, another gay man, had nothing to do with children. Um, and so that was difficult because he's so close to his nieces and nephews, but his uh, brother didn't want to, you know, well, he didn't want to create a potential problem with custody situation um, with, with an ex-partner. Uh, and so it was considered, you know, potentially risky in terms of legal and custody issues to give uh, potential, you know, ammunition or something uh, that Nick was, was around the kids. So it was just really awful. He'd love to go back to Iowa. He'd love to be closer to his, his family and his friends there and where his career really was. But unfortunately, he'd have to go back on that sex offender registry. And as he says, he just can't live under that kind of, uh, uh, you know, oppressive uh, uh, control. And that's why I say this is, you know, some of these punishments are really medieval. I don't want to neglect the fact that you know, when people don't disclose and there is risk of transmission, there's a harm there. You know, I don't think anyone should be transmitting this virus to anyone else. Um, but I think we need to understand that the most basic message about sexual health is that ultimately each of us is responsible for ourselves. Now, we all want to have partners who care about us, who love us, who protect us, um, but we have to be responsible for protecting ourselves ultimately. You know, my view is, you know, if someone doesn't ask, what they're saying is that they don't care. Um, and I think it is important that people ask, and I think it is important that people um, understand both sides of the disclosure dynamic, if, uh, if, if that makes sense. No, it totally does. And, you know, that's the biggest question is who do you blame? Is it the person 
responsibility who's living with HIV to do disclosure, or is it both parties and the person who is negative also to ask? Um, the, and by the way, um, and, and, and of course, the person being punished is the person who took the responsible step of getting tested and knowing uh, his or her uh, HIV positive status. Yet, the people who haven't gotten tested, they're the ones who are transmitting the virus much, much, much more often than those of us who do know. Uh, but there have been a couple of other just sort of curious things to, to give people a sense of where this kind of thing can go uh, and, and a sense of scale. There have been charges filed under the HIV-specific statutes, um, I am sure, at least 1,000 times, maybe 1,500 or 2,000 times in the U.S. alone. Um, there have been, I think, 345 documented prosecutions as of a couple of years ago. There are probably another 50 since then. Um, and I'm uh, going state by state and filing Freedom of Information Act requests and so on, sometimes county by county and parish by parish to find as many uh, cases where the charges were filed as, as, as possible. The U.S. is leading the world in this, and we are exporting this injustice elsewhere. Um, in, uh, and it's definitely you know, growing in a global phenomenon. But there have also been cases where someone had never gotten tested, but they were found liable of transmission. Um, because the court ruled that they should have gotten tested, they should have known they were positive. And then very recently in Minneapolis, there was a case where um, someone was being prosecuted for, uh, uh, for non-disclosure. And I think there, I can't remember if it was transmission, or there may have been transmission, and there were some other charges involved. But specific to the disclosure uh, charge, the jury specifically found that, the, that he had disclosed. They believed that he had disclosed, even though the partner claimed that he hadn't. But because he didn't use a condom, he was convicted anyway. So their interpretation of the Minnesota statute is that even if someone discloses, if they don't use a condom, they've committed a crime. Wow. And, you know, Public health, I'm not saying there isn't a public health interest here. There obviously is. But the public health interest in regulating private sexual behaviors between consenting adults is very different than the public health interest in preventing transmission of things that are casually transmitted, like tuberculosis, you know, that you could get in a subway car, in an elevator. You know, it doesn't require any act of your own volition you know, undertaking a, 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 you know, some sort of risk. There's risk inherent in having sexual contact. Um, uh, and public health laws have been used to control and oppress various populations for a long time. Public health laws were one of the reasons why states prohibited interracial marriage. Um, they're certainly a big factor in the sodomy statutes that prohibited, you know, gay people from, from uh, expressing their sexuality with each other. So uh, we need to see this in the context of these overall trends and, and this history. But we also need to, I know you'll have listeners who will be hearing this and they're, okay, interesting points, whatever, but they still just sort of, you know, they feel like these laws are correct, that, 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 that this needs to be there. And I just urge you to look at it more, do some reading, listen to some of the experts and, and some of the research showing that they don't achieve their intended purpose. There's lots of research showing that they don't achieve their intended purpose to slow transmission. I happen to believe they are speeding up transmission. They are facilitating transmission because of the extent to which they contribute to stigma, that they drive stigma so dramatically. Uh, and they discourage people from disclosing. They discourage people from testing. They discourage people from accessing treatment all things that contribute to the spread of the disease. Now, there's not a lot of research making that link in a, in a conclusive way yet, but fortunately there's some research now underway looking at that. But there is lots of research showing that the statutes do not achieve their intended purpose. So, uh, you know, when I talk to, to groups, uh, you know, there was some survey work 
at the University of Minnesota of gay men's attitudes about HIV criminalization. And about two-thirds of gay men across the board in the U.S. supported HIV criminalization when, when, when they're um, uh, asked about it. And the younger they are, the more of them supported it. Uh, the youngest category, I think, was 18 to 21 or 18 to 25. Uh, they, 79% supported that. Um, those numbers fall very quickly once people get some education and start thinking about it. Um, but it's a huge, huge uh, task we have ahead of us, you know, educating ourselves and our, uh, our, our friends and our communities and, uh, and ultimately the legislators and the policy leaders uh, who, are, who have the power to change this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, um, we have uh, some callers on hold, so I want to bring them on so sure. you can ask the questions. Um, if you want to call us here, 347-215-9442 and press the one button so we know you want to come on air. Area code 843, what's your name and where are you calling from? Hey, Robert, this is Monique Marie, calling hey, from South Monique. Carolina. <laughs> How are you? I'm, I'm just calling there. I'm just calling to say hey to Sean and tell Sean um, continue doing exactly what you're doing. And like I always tell you, I think the HIV laws and policies for criminalization truly, truly need to be changed because, for one, the transmission of the virus, you know, was never even transmitted in the first place. So, like you said, Sean, I think each of us as adults um, should be responsible, you know, for ourselves and just ask, you know, ask our partner. Um, before engaging in the sexual activities. So, Monique, it's so nice to hear your voice. How is Stephen and how is the center? It's open now. Yes, it's open, running, got an awesome volunteer staff. Everyone's coming in. People are getting tested. I'm encouraging them to, and, I mean, it's it's great. It's great. And um, Stephen is doing fine. He he asked about you. I tell him you said hey through the emails. And Robert uh, Seidel, I think I pronounced his name wrong. Uh, Robert and Nick. Oh, Robert Settle, yeah. Yeah, Robert Settle and Nick Rhodes. Um, they're like just we're just like family now, so we we keep in contact. <laughs> oh, good, good. Well, great. So to I just wanted to say hey. Good. All right, next we are going to uh, Scott. You have a question from the chat room, right? Yes, there's a question in the chat room from uh, Charlotte, and um, she is asking if um, there's any laws or amendments on the table to protect those that have HIV and do disclose to protect HIV-positive people? That, well, the, in terms of the laws, I mean, the, 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 they're how to protect. There are things a person with HIV can do to protect themselves, to give themselves some protection. Um, and the Positive Justice Project, we've created a small palm card, we call it, that has a few tips on it. That First of all, if you think you might be at risk of getting arrested or charged or whatever, you know, uh, there are some things you should do, namely get a lawyer and don't say a word and don't agree to give blood or don't acknowledge that you're positive, anything like that. But then there are also tips. How can you protect yourself? Um, so the one way is to prove or provide evidence that you disclose. So people save email messages. They save their texting back and forth, things that disclose it. Some people have gone so far as to have their sexual partners sign a statement acknowledging that there was disclosure, that they know that the partner has HIV. Um, Others, people in ongoing relationships, sometimes have taken their partner with them to doctor's appointments and asking the doctor to note in the medical record that it was disclosed and discussed with their partner. Um, It is ridiculous that people have to kind of go through this, that we have to, 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 you know, to, to to prove this because a lot of these cases are revenge cases. A lot of them are, you know, every person with HIV in this country is one disgruntled ex partner away from finding themselves in a courtroom. And, um, and that's anybody. You know, that's the you have somebody who's upset with you enough. Uh, it's uh, um, so the idea of taking steps to protect yourself is a very, very good one. Um, and it's some of it. There are some states that are more aggressive, but it's very um, peculiar to individual prosecutors. Um, 
uh, you know, under what circumstances and when they charge. Quite frankly, I mean, it's, you know, the, the other clause with our criminal justice system, if you're poor, if you're a person of color, uh, you know, all those things, you're much more likely to be, uh, to be charged. Um, and, you know, that's just the inherent racism and injustice in, in our criminal justice system. Uh, but um, uh, it, there are lots of other people getting charged as well now. And in, in some other countries, they've had some very high-profile cases. One of the most famous singers in Germany, Nadja Van Asa, who uh, one time I think she had the number one you know, pop song in Germany, uh, she was arrested right before she was going on stage. She was giving a concert. There are thousands of people there. Prosecutors showed up with media, with cameras, and arrested her kind of, you know, grandly and theatrically for uh, uh, two men she'd had sex with several years before who claimed that she hadn't disclosed. I One read them, about that, yeah, like a year ago. It was a huge case in Germany. It was front page of the papers because it was a big, you know, celebrity and so on. We haven't had that happen yet in the U.S. with a big celebrity, you know, but it will. Mm. It will. Yeah. Um, I agree. Let's um, move over. I have one more caller online, so let me bring uh, this person on. Area code 631. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, uh, this is Mike calling from Long Island, New York. Hey, Mike. Hi, Michael. What's your question? Hi there. <laughs> so funny, Scott. I'm on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. I'm, I'm glad a good, you good, friend of, good friend of Scott's. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a so, question for Sean? Yeah, I you know I I guess I guess you know um I, my my situation I guess what makes me unique is is that I'm actually kind of on both sides of this right now I feel like you know I recently found out that I was HIV positive and I found out I was infected by my husband who lied to me that he was negative and you know instantly I went to this space of I'd love to send him to jail I'd love to sue him all of this stuff. And, you know, now I realize the position I'm in, you know, I wouldn't want that with me either. But, you know, I still, you know, I I think there might be some situations where, you know, there's some, there's got to be something to it, you know, in terms of, you know, some criminal thing. If somebody's, you know, you know, in this situation that I'm in, I don't know. I mean, I just wanted to see what you thought given the situation. Well, I think you are seeing exactly how difficult and complicated this is because right. so, there often is a real harm. You know, people lie and they, they hurt partners in ways that, that affect the rest of their lives. Um, right. Not just with HIV, but, but, but uh, uh, so, you know, it's, I spend so much time talking about why these laws are wrong um, and what a problem they are in terms of addressing prevention uh, that I always try and make a point to acknowledge uh, to acknowledge that that harm um, you know the, right. the, the law yeah, and, I, 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 and I see I see the you know the danger in it you know and I obviously I think that you know exceeds the you know the, the anything that might happen to somebody like you know, I, I I just I see it being a big problem if it, it really if this is allowed to happen at any level. Um, you know, I I don't know. <laughs> well, recourse that you do have uh, is in the civil courts. You know, we right. don't make everything that is a lie doesn't is not a criminal offense. You know, when we get into making dealing with with you know moral and ethical issues and turning them into law, it's always a problem. But we do have the criminal courts, and when someone lies to you, and especially when they lie to you and you can then demonstrate there was a harm, as there clearly was in your case, then that's what the criminal courts are for, uh, to you know, provide justice to people that were harmed through, in this case, deception. Um, the criminal court system, and that's what the civil courts are for, excuse me, the civil courts. The criminal uh, courts, the idea... Uh, it, with the, the public health aspect is that this was somehow going to, you know, stop the spread of HIV, that if people with HIV thought that they were at risk of, of getting arrested, that they then would disclose more. Um, but that's where there's all this research showing it doesn't do that. It doesn't slow the spread of the epidemic. And now a growing number of people, myself included, think that it actually is driving the epidemic. So, um, 
you know, in your view, in your situation, you are feeling, I'm guessing, you, you need some justice. You know, how can this person do this to you and not have consequences? Um, and, and so that's where, you know, where, you know, people can go to civil court and, um, and find some justice there. Yeah, there was that one case I was watching, Oprah, was that uh, woman, was it Bridget B. was her name? There's that big case that was on, on Oprah. The Philip Padu from... case. Yeah, that's the What's Philip that? Padu case. It was a case called uh, Philip Padu was the, was the guy. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he, and that was a civil... Which he didn't have a he didn't have a pot to piss in, so he uh you know he she sued and got nothing. So well, that's that's another <laughs> issue as well. That's the problem with it. If you're gonna go sue somebody that doesn't have any money, <laughs> my ex doesn't have any money. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get a 2002 uh, Ford Focus. <laughs> <laughs> That was a yeah. great talk, well, thank you, Michael. Thanks so much for calling in. Sure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Talk soon. Thanks, guys. Robert, if that caller would be willing to talk to me on camera, I am looking for people who have been in that kind of situation, who have been you know, harmed because somebody lied to them or, are, uh, uh, or pressed charges against someone. Um, because in the film, I wanted to have, you know, a full view of, of, of what these, <laughs> the situation, you know, uh, uh, means to people from different perspectives on the issue. So that's if, great. If that well, caller, can, yeah. if that, the caller, I'm sure, is still listening. And if they're interested, get in touch with me, and I'd be happy to talk to you uh, and interview you. That's great. Wow. That's awesome. You know, um, one of the things that I was thinking about was, you know, if I went back to when I was first diagnosed in 2001, you know, and I was angry when I was diagnosed and everything, and, of course, I, I would want to, you know, think that there would have to be some sort of repercussion for the person who infected me. But then I think about it more, and I go, I never asked the person if they were HIV positive. So they didn't technically lie to me like the last caller was saying that his husband did. This person never told me anything I never asked. You know what I mean? So if, I think if I would have sat back and took the victim role, not asking questions about the other person's status, I don't think that today I would be the person that I am. So, you know, in, in some way, I, I felt like I needed to embrace it to be a better person instead of blaming somebody else. And I think sometimes a lot of people like that feel the same way. Yeah, I think that's – and I think an awful lot of people go through a process where after – they find out they're positive and, and somebody deceived them. You know, they're, they're, they're hurt personally in addition to, to the, you know, the, the, the medical consequences um, that over time as they absorb that, um, uh, I don't want to say that they are forgiving, but they, they have a broader view on it and as well as their own role and responsibility in, uh, in, in taking the risks, even the risk of trusting um, um, so I think people's sort of attitude about it evolves over time. Right. Wow, I can't believe Russia down to the, like a minute and a half, Sean. I totally did not even pay attention. I totally lost the whole hour because it was so I was so involved. Just a quick question: Where people can you know search HIV is not a crime on on the internet and they'll find your your uh, your trailer. Where can people go and find the laws in their state? Um, the Positive Justice Project is part of the Center for HIV Law and Policy, and their website has tremendous resources. Um, and you can go and there's a, there's a report that shows state by state. It not only shows the statute in that state, if there's an HIV-specific statute, but it also discusses some of the cases and how it has been applied by different prosecutors, uh, uh, which is you know just as, as valuable. Uh, and that is... Uh, HIV law and policy.org. HIV law and policy.org. Uh, or you can Google the Positive Justice Project or, uh, uh, or me. I'm pretty easy to find, Sean Strube at, at gmail.com, and I'll be glad to direct people uh, appropriately. 
Great, Saul. When this comes out, we want you to come back on to talk more about it. I'm excited. I just hope that when it comes out, it's going to be somewhere available where everybody can go and get it or, or go and view it. You know what I mean? Well, thank you, and we'll, we'll, we'll try and get it everywhere, <laughs> everywhere we can. Sounds good. All okay, right, thank um, you very much. Fred. Thanks, Sean. Have a great night. Okay, good night. All right. Uh, Scott, what a great show, man. I am totally flabbergasted amazing. I want to thank our guest, Sean Stroop, for joining us. Um, and, Scott, thank you for um, co-hosting. This oh, it was my pleasure. And um, I hope everybody will join us next week. Um, there's a possibility that we're going to have a special guest, um, and, and I'll talk about that. It's actually uh, Greg Luganis, so hopefully I can confirm that, and we'll have him on next week. So uh, don't forget to tune in. Uh, Scott, have a great night. Thanks. You too. Have a good night, everyone. Thanks, everyone. And remember, you can find more information on the show and myself at www. Pazim.com. Thank you and have a great night. I contracted a preventable disease from a guy that looks good and smells good but never mentioned that he had HIV. But he is not to blame. I should have loved myself enough to protect myself. But through it all, I found self-love and it's the greatest thing I ever felt. I was never less than or equal to AIDS but always greater. I just realized that not caring for myself or my body, I was my biggest hater. I am author of the naked truth, Marvin Brown, and I am greater than AIDS.